Welcome to another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot. As she called us to live to a higher standard each day, to not be satisfied with just a little religion, when we can know God and have a relationship with Him. Today in this podcast, our theme, A Deafening Silence. As the podcast series continues in the coming weeks, we'll hear from family, friends, and others who are influenced by Elizabeth's life and message. Today we continue this extended series on Operation Alka and other events during Elizabeth's time in Ecuador. Our guests today, a longtime friend of Elizabeth, Arlita Winston. And we'll hear again from author and Christian leader Barbara Riach as she talks about Jim and Elizabeth at Wheaton College, about Gates of Splendor, and about missions. Our lead is topic, the real Elizabeth Elliot, and she'll share thoughts about Jim's death. We share two of the Gateway to Joy programs. Our first is Gateway to Joy 95, Silence in the Jungle. The radio was on, but there was no message from the five missionary men. The wives sat near the radio, still no word. Isaiah 43 comes up in the discussion today. Four bodies were found. What happened to the other man? Was he in the jungle? Did he escape? Think about that with us as we have Gateway to Joy 95, Silence in the Jungle. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot. We've been telling the story of five American missionaries who had gone into the edge of Alca territory in the eastern jungle of Ecuador. The Alcas were a people who were known to be savages, Stone Age people, naked people, with whom no missionary had ever had contact, people who had never heard the name of Jesus. They had set up a camp. They had had a friendly contact. Nate Saint, the pilot of a small plane, had flown over the Alca houses and on January the 8th, 1956, had seen 10 Alcas headed in the direction of the missionary's camp. He radioed back to his wife, this is it, they're on their way. We'll talk to you at 4.30 this afternoon. At 4.30 sharp, Marge Saint eagerly switched on the radio receiver in Shalmeta. This was the moment when the big news would come. Had the men been invited to follow the Alcas to their houses? What further developments would Nate be able to report? She looked at her watch again. Yes, it was at least 4.30. No sound from Palm Beach. She and Olive hunched close to the radio. The atmosphere was not giving any interference. Perhaps Nate's watch had run a little slow. In Atahuno, Mary Lou and Barbara had their radio on, too. Silence. They waited a few minutes, then called Shelmeda. Arahuno calling Shelmeda. Arahuno standing by for Shelmeda. Any word from Palm Beach, Marge? Over. Shelmeda standing by. No, no word as yet. We'll be standing by. Not a crackle broke the silence. Were the men so preoccupied with entertaining their visitors that they had forgotten the planned contact? Five minutes? Ten minutes? No, it was inconceivable that all five would forget. It was the first time since Nate had started jungle flying in 1948 that he and Marge had been out of contact even for an hour. But perhaps their radio was not functioning. It happened occasionally. 
the women clung to each little hope. In Atahuno, Barbara and little Beth Udarian had primped up a bit since it had been planned that Raj would come to Atahuno that night while Pete took a turn sleeping in the treehouse. Surely the little plane would come winging over the treetops before sundown. They walked up and down the airstrip, waiting, waiting. I knew nothing until the next morning at 7 o'clock. Marge called me at 7 o'clock to tell me that nothing had been heard from the men since yesterday. Would you please come back at 10 o'clock and stand by for Johnny's report, Marge said. Johnny Keenan, the other pilot, was going to fly over the territory and see if he could see what had happened. This was the first that I knew that anything was amiss. And the words that came to my mind immediately were from Isaiah 43, verse 2. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God. God was not telling me that I would not have to pass through the waters. He was simply saying, I will be with thee. I went back upstairs to continue teaching the Indian girls' literacy class, praying silently, Lord, let not the waters overflow. At about 9.30, Johnny's report came through. Marge relayed it to me in Shandia. Johnny has found the plane on the beach. All the fabric is stripped off. There is no sign of the fellows. I remember my shock at the thought that the plane was wrecked. I remember a greater shock when Marge's voice came on saying, I don't care what happens to the old plane. All I want is for the fellows to come back. It really hadn't dawned on me that it could be quite that serious. Then I realized the fabric stripped from the plane. That means the Alcas did it. That means the Alcas must have been hostile. What else did they do? Larry Montgomery, a pilot with Wycliffe Bible Translators, made contact immediately with General William K. Harrison, the commander-in-chief of the Caribbean Command of the U.S. Air Rescue Service in Panama. The news flashed around the world. Five men were missing in Alca territory. Forces were set in motion, including the prayers of thousands. A ground party was formed. Our hopes were raised. On Wednesday, Johnny Keenan took off again in MAF's second Piper cruiser, the twin to Nate's plane, on his fourth flight over Palm Beach to see if there were any signs of life. Marge, who had hardly left the radio since Sunday afternoon, stood by for Johnny's report. Barbara, Olive, and I were upstairs. Suddenly Marge called, Betty, Barbara, Olive. I raced down the stairs. Marge was standing with her head against the radio, her eyes closed. After a while she spoke. They found one body. A quarter mile down the river from the little denuded plain, Johnny had sighted a body floating face down in the water, dressed in cocky pants and white T-shirt, the usual uniform of the men. It's not Raj, Barb said. He was wearing blue jeans. As the ground party made their way toward the missionary camp, they hoped that they would meet at least one of the five men. 
suddenly they came face to face with a party of Quechua Indians who had gone ahead of the missionary ground party. We found Senor Eduardo's body, they said. Ed McCulley. You did? How do you know? Here's his watch. Here's his wedding ring. They knew. Back in Chalmetta, there were babies to be taken care of, meals to be cooked, guests galore because people had poured in from all over, offering to help us. The radio had to be manned. Mechanics were working on the blades of the helicopter that had been sent down from the Caribbean. And this was what I wrote in my diary. Johnny's Piper and the helicopter are headed for Atahuno. Also the Navy R-4D with Captain McGee and Major Nuremberg in a helicopter. 3 p.m. The aircraft are stacking up over the site of the incident now. I feel sick at my stomach. 3.20. Blessed is she that believed. The aircraft are circling the site. 3.30. Yea, in the way of thy judgment, O Lord, we have waited for thee. The desire of our soul is to thy name. Four o'clock, still circling. Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him. We had no other hope except God at this point. The U.S. Navy R-4D and an amphibian of the Air Rescue Service and the Ecuadorian Air Force were close by. But as the psalm says, a horse is a vain thing for safety, and so is an R-4D, an amphibian, or a helicopter. When the aircraft returned to Atahuno, once on the ground, Major Nuremberg, with his face showing the strain, confirmed our suspicions. Speaking in low tones to the tight circle of military men, he explained that McCulley's body, identified by the small party of Quichuas the day before, was now gone from the beach, no doubt washed away by the rain and higher water in the night. He leafed through his notebook for a moment. A few Indians stood silent in the tall grass nearby, listening, watching. We found four in the river, Nuremberg said finally. I don't think identification will be possible from what I have here, indicating his notebook. One of them might be Macaulay. He did not have to say what was in every mind. There might be one who got away, possibly wounded, still in the jungle. How to inform the wives was the question uppermost in their minds. Should Mary Lou be told she was right at Atahuno in the house, seven months pregnant? We'd better wait, Nuremberg said. DeWitt is running this show. Well, finally they came back. Barbara Udarian wrote in her diary, Tonight the captain told us of his finding four bodies in the river. One had T-shirt and blue jeans. Raj was the only one who wore them. God gave me this verse two days ago, Psalm 48, 14. This God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. As I came face to face with the news of Raja's death, my heart was filled with praise. He was worthy of his home going. Help me, Lord, to be both mummy and daddy, to know wisdom and instruction. Tonight, Beth prayed for daddy in heaven, 
and asked me if Daddy would come down from heaven to get a letter she wanted to write to him. I said, he can't come down, Beth. He's with Jesus. She said, but Jesus can help him come down, and God will take his hand so he won't slip. I wrote a letter to the mission family trying to explain the peace I have. I want to be free of self-pity. It is a tool of Satan to rot away a life. I am sure that this is the perfect will of God. Many will say, why did Raj get mixed up in this when his work was with Hivaros? Because Raj came to do the will of him that sent him. The Lord has closed our hearts to grief and hysteria and filled in with his perfect peace. That was Gateway to Joy 95, Silence in the Jungle. As I mentioned, we're going to hear later on from Christian author and leader Barbara Riach. Uh, first, though, it's Arlita Winston. A rather officious woman once demanded from Elizabeth Elliot, who is the real Elizabeth Elliot? To which she replied, may God help me from ever knowing. <laughs> Some saw Elizabeth as being stern, unapproachable, and even perfect. I knew a different Elizabeth. For more than 50 years, she was my closest friend. Before she wrote a single book, I knew her. We called her Betty. She was 10 years older than I, but we both graduated from the same Hampton DuBose Academy. She had been held up as a model for me by Mrs. DuBose, and I wanted to become that, but I knew it impossible. The night that Jim Elliott and his four companions were speared to death, I stayed up all night with Mrs. DuBose and some others praying and waiting for word about the five men. She and I connected like two magnets. We had separate paths, to be sure, but we walked together in a deep friendship, corresponding, telephoning, sharing our hearts, and talking about God. Author and speaker and friend of Elizabeth, Arlita Winston. Well, later on, we'll hear from author and Christian leader Barbara Riach on Elizabeth and Jim's time at Wheaton about gates of splendor and more. Now, that's later on. First, though, it's Gateway to Joy 96. It's called Life Goes On. Think about it. The five wives knew they were now widows. At the site of the attack, there was tension. There was grief. We'll hear about a common grave and a bullet hole in the window of the plane. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. We knew we five missionary wives in Ecuador in January of 1956 that we were not wives anymore. We were widows. Our husbands had been slain by a tribe of Indians called Alcas as they attempted to go to take to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Life magazine got word of the missing men before we knew that they were all dead. Immediately, they asked Cornell Kappa, a photographer correspondent, if he would go to Ecuador to cover this story. He flew immediately and got there in time to be taken to the beach where the five men had died. A naval mission plane was circling overhead as Cornell landed in a helicopter. 
This is what he wrote. The atmosphere on the beach was fantastic. Everybody's hand was on the trigger, looking toward the jungle. I did not have to ask why. The rain was coming down in buckets. My handkerchief served no more to clean my water-soaked lenses. Suddenly I saw a struggling group of men carrying the last of the missionaries to his common grave. He was on an improvised stretcher made out of the aluminum sheets that had covered the treehouse where the men had lived. It was a terrible sight. The light was eerie. The pallbearers struggled against a muddy bank that led to the grave. I just made it in time to see the lifeless legs disappearing into the hole. Grim, weary missionaries looked for the last time at their friends, whom they could no more identify. One said, It's better this way. I feel less miserable. They lingered for a moment, offering up a few words of prayer. At the end, Major Nuremberg, facing the jungle with carbine in hand, turned back toward the small knot of men about the grave and called, Let's get out of here. The rain let up a bit, the helicopter was ready to leave, and the time was near for decision. I could either go back with the pilot or stay with the ground party, starting the overnight homeward trek. It was an easy decision. To leave now would be cheating. I gave my exposed film to the pilot. The struggle of the living to stay alive had just begun. At last we were off. The canoes were overloaded, and at the slightest movement water poured through the side. This was to be no fun at all, I thought quietly to myself. Major Nuremberg was in front with his carbine, and I could see from the back of his head that he had a mean look in his eyes. Nuremberg leaned back on D. Short, a red-headed, very long-legged missionary in a very small boat, who in turn leaned on me, and I leaned on the dismounted wheel of the ill-fated plane which we had salvaged. My back ached. Like a mother hen, I tried to protect my film pouches and to hide my cameras from the rain. It was futile. Back in the kitchen in Shelmeta, Dr. Art Johnson was describing to us the details of what had happened. We wanted to know them all. They wanted to protect us from the worst. We wanted to know the worst so that we could face it and accept it and move on. There were many questions that the ground party could not answer. There had been evidence of struggle on the beach. We had hoped, of course, that if the men were dead, that their death had been quick and easy. When the ground party came back, they told us that there were deep footprints from one end of the beach to the other. Some of the footprints were those of shoes, some barefoot. What kind of a struggle could have gone on for such a long time? There was a bullet hole in the window of the airplane. What did that mean? Had there been shooting? Had any Alcas been killed? There was no blood. Had the men backed into the river, or had they been thrown in? Why were all the bodies in the river? Frank Drown, the leader of the ground party, had this explanation to give. An Indian, when he first hears or sees something new, will accept it. Perhaps he accepts merely from normal curiosity, but he does accept. But after he has had time to think about the novelty, he begins to feel threatened, and that's the time when he may attack. A group of Indians will sit back and discuss a new contrivance or a new way of doing things with some eagerness, but the witch doctors, who are the real conservatives, can be counted on for rejection. They have a lot of authority, 
and when they work on their fellow tribesmen to reject an innovation, the people seldom go contrary to their advice. As in any culture, the younger men may be looking for a new way of life, but the older ones hang on to their traditions and maintain the status quo. Furthermore, most Indians are basically and understandably skeptical of anything the white man offers. And don't forget that, after all, this was the first time within memory that the Alcas have had an encounter with the white man which was completely friendly. We can only hope that they are pondering that fact right now. My imagination went wild, trying to picture the scene on the beach on that afternoon of January the 8th, 1956. Which of the men watched the others fall? Which of them had time to think of his wife and children? Had one been covering the others in the treehouse with a gun and come down in an attempt to save them? Had they suffered long? These questions remained a mystery. We knew this much. Whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the Gospels, the same shall save it. There was no question as to the present state of our loved ones. They were with Christ. Once more, ancient words from the Book of Books came to mind. All this has come upon us, yet have we not forgotten thee. Our heart is not turned back, neither have our steps declined from thy way, though thou hast sore broken us in the place of dragons and covered us with the shadow of death. We mothers tried to help the children to know that this was not a tragedy. My daughter was only ten months old. There was nothing that she could understand, no father that she was going to miss. I know my daddy is with Jesus, but I miss him, said three-year-old Stevie McCulley. I wish he would just come down and play with me once in a while. Several weeks later, back in the States, Stevie's little brother, Matthew, was born. One day, the baby was crying, and Stevie was heard to say, Never mind, when we get to heaven, I'll show you which one is our daddy. Was the price too great? Think of the impact that the death of those five men, which was reported in newspapers and on television around the world, has had on thousands of people who otherwise would never have heard of them. In Brazil, a group of Indians at a mission station deep in the Mato Grosso when they heard the news, dropped to their knees and cried out to God for forgiveness for their own lack of concern for fellow Indians who did not know of Christ. In Rome, an American official wrote to one of the widows, I knew your husband. He was to me the ideal of what a Christian should be. An Air Force major stationed in England, with many hours of jet flying, immediately began making plans to join the Missionary Aviation Fellowship. A missionary in Africa wrote, Our work will never be the same. We knew two of the men. Off the coast of Italy, an American naval officer was involved in an accident at sea. As he floated alone on a raft, he recalled Jim Elliott's words, which he had read in a news report. When it comes time to die, make sure that all you have to do is die. He prayed that he might be saved, knowing that he had more to do than die. He was not ready. God answered his prayer, and he was rescued. In Des Moines, Iowa, an 18-year-old boy prayed for a week in his room, then announced to his parents, I'm turning my life over completely to the Lord. I want to try to take the place of one of those five. Letters poured in 
to us five widows. From a college in Japan, we are praying for you. From a group of Eskimo children in a Sunday school in Alaska. From a Chinese church in Houston, Texas. From a missionary on the Nile River who had picked up Time magazine and seen a photograph of her friend, Ed McCulley. Who can say that they would have done more if they had lived than they could do in dying? Remember Jim Elliott's words, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He had written in his diary these words, I walked out to the hill just now. It is exalting, delicious, to stand embraced by the shadows of a friendly tree with the wind tugging at your coattail and the heavens hailing your heart, to gaze and glory and give oneself again to God. What more could a man ask? Oh, the fullness, pleasure, sheer excitement of knowing God on earth. I care not if I never raise my voice again for him, if only I may love him and please him. Perhaps in mercy he will give me a host of children that I may lead them through that vast star field to explore his delicacies, whose finger ends set them to burning. But if not, if only I may see him touch his garments and smile into his eyes, then not stars nor children shall matter, only himself. O oh, Jesus, master and center and end of all, how long before that glory is thine which has so long waited thee? Now there is no thought of thee among men, then there shall be thought for nothing else. Now other men are praised, then none shall care for any other's merits but thine. Hasten, glory of heaven, take thy crown, subdue thy kingdom, enthrall thy creatures. Gateway to Joy 96, Life Goes On. Well, as I mentioned, author and Christian leader Barbara Riach has some thoughts on Jim and Elizabeth's time at Wheaton, about Gates of Splendor, about missionary influence. Although I did not meet Elizabeth Elliot until much later, God began to stir my heart's imagination with her story. When we took our son to Wheaton to begin his freshman year, on a campus tour, we learned that Jim and Elizabeth Elliot had met at Wheaton. And so we were eager to learn more about this dynamic couple because for some time God had been nudging my husband and me toward mission work. And so God used the Elliot story and Elizabeth's books in particular to instill vision and courage in our hearts. We often enjoyed reading aloud when taking family trips and we could hardly put down the book through Gates of Splendor that told the story of the five American missionaries to reach the Warani tribe of Eastern Ecuador. So a dear friend of mine worked at the Billy Graham Training Center at the Cove and wanting to encourage us in God's call, she made sure that we were there whenever Elizabeth Elliot spoke. Elizabeth's stories really captivated our hearts. I think she, more than anyone, lifted me to a higher trust in God's gracious sovereignty, as well as a deeper love for his infinite wisdom. God displayed his faithfulness in Elizabeth's unreserved commitment. 
And through her life, God irresistibly drew my husband and me toward missions. Author and Christian leader Barbara Riach. Well, we leave the five widows in the mystery of their husband's last days. Let me thank you for letting us come into your home, your office, wherever you happen to be. On behalf of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, you can find out more about us at elizabethelliot.org. A lot of resources there. Don't miss it. elizabethelliot.org. And in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, we bring you this podcast each week. Let me invite you back next time. Until then, may God remind you daily that you are loved with an everlasting love, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Thank you.